You're listening to the Golden West Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I explore the best in food and wine on the West Coast, including California, Oregon, and Washington. We're about to go on a journey, exploring the people and stories behind the vineyards, farms, and kitchens. So grab a drink, fire up your grill, pull up a seat to the table, and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they're known for single-origin coffees, and they're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I always start my day off with a cup or two. I make it by hand with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make yours. You can use a pour-over, maybe use a Chemex, maybe you just use a basic Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You don't want those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find in the grocery store, and I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our promo code, GOLDENWEST. You'll get $5 off your first purchase. Do it now while you're thinking about it, and your coffee will show up at your doorstep as soon as you know it. Today in the show, we have Scott and Vakel Holly from Torin Wines in Paso Robles. Enjoy my conversation with Scott and Vakel. Scott and Vakel, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Well, it's great having you both here. So I first heard about Torin from a good friend of mine who's even a bigger wine geek than myself. Um, he's on like so many mailing lists, and he's always just on top of the top producers, especially in California. And he kind of turned me on to you guys. And, um, you know, I was immediately interested and started looking on the website and, and saw that you guys started getting some really good reviews from Jeff, Jeff Dunnick and a lot of critical acclaim. So I was immediately kind of interested and also you being in Paso Robles, um, you know, caught my eye too as a region that I want to spend more time on. So let's let's dive in. There's so much to get through. Um, at first, we can kind of go to your backstory before we jump into the wines. All right, sounds good. Well, first of all, um, I'm glad to hear you heard about us that way. That's kind of been our sort of our go-to. We really, are, you know, we're a small brand and we're not in a lot of places in the market. You know, it's mostly direct to consumers. And honestly, we started out minuscule with a couple hundred cases and you know, we're fortunate to be here today doing what we love because of people, you know, sharing the word and spreading the information and that kind of grassroots campaign is really, you know, why we're here, man. So I'm glad to hear that that's kind of how you stumbled across us. So first of all, that's great. So we appreciate that, man. Um, kind of going back a little bit, our sort of our backstory. I mean, um, you know, Vakel and I, we moved to Paso in 2000. Mm-hmm. So we've been here for over 20 years now. Um, prior to that, we met um, up in Mendocino County after I had gone to to Fresno State for enology. Um, I guess I'm kind of working backwards, so we'll we'll go way back. Um, originally, you know, I'm I'm from originally from Nebraska, which is kind of odd. Not too many winemakers, I'm sure, from Nebraska, but um, moved out to California when I was four, and uh, so I I claim California as home. Uh, grew up in the Central Valley, you know, lots of ag there, lots of citrus, avocados, olives, that kind of thing. Uh, my family wasn't really in it at all. Um, strict Baptist home, no alcohol, you know, really not a lot of things leading me to believe that this is where I would end up. But, um, you know, my first job when I was in high school was on a citrus ranch and um, I was out there hoeing weeds and 
doing whatever I needed to do. And um, the one thing I always remember is the smells. You know, you get those orange blossoms, those citrus blossoms, and um, just how amazing I thought uh, being outdoors and working in the dirt and, and, and the smells and the connections and the memories and stuff that come with that um, was, was pretty fascinating. And uh, so I didn't necessarily know at the point that I was going to end up in a, a career basically agriculturally based, but um, I think that that kind of sort of sparked that interest. Um, so I'll, I'll go to my next phase in a few minutes. Vikel kind of grew up in Mendocino County. and Yeah, so I grew up in a small town called Ukiah, um, definitely ag area, both pears and grapes. Uh, my maiden name is Locatelli, and so we, um, part of my family actually had vineyards. I didn't grow up on a vineyard, but I had uncles and cousins and that type of thing who did have vineyards. Um, <clears throat> so just grew up around ag a lot, you know, as a kid. And then I actually went to school in the University of Colorado at Boulder and did environmental studies and biology there. And then when I moved back home to Ukiah, I started working at a winery called Fetzer and was doing a lot of their hospitality, but I predominantly wanted to work there because they are they were very into organics and biodynamics at the time. And then I just happened to meet mm -hmm. Scott there at mm -hmm. the same time. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's crazy. Yeah. That's not exactly where we met though. <laughs> yeah, that's a deeper story. Yeah. But yeah, you know, you know, growing up in the Central Valley, as I said, being around agriculture and stuff, but not really being in the wine industry, it was it was very different. Um, but I, I always kind of hovered around sort of the creative process, things that were sort of rooted in creativity and art and music and and these types of things. But I just wasn't really good at any of them. Um, couldn't sing, couldn't play guitar. Oh come uh, on, you know. <laughs> you're an amazing shower singer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I knew I wanted to do something like that, and um, I remember one point, um, my mom just asking me what I wanted to do, and I I didn't really have a definitive answer, but I I knew that it was something that that not a lot of other people did, you know, I just, just something that was, that was unique and, um, kind of went off a little bit of a different path. And, um, when I started looking into to college, I was actually playing water polo, um, all through high school. And I went to a JC right out of high school and played, played water polo there. And I was looking at Fresno state really for almost more financial reasons than anything. I had family that lived in Fresno and I knew I could go and, you know, if, if all else failed, I'd have somewhere to live. Um, and, I figured I needed a degree in something, so I started out as a business major because I looked at the enology program, and it's basically pre-med, <laughs> you know, for the under undergrad work with all the chemistry and microbiology and all these crazy things, and then you kind of migrate into the the more specifics later on. So I figured, man, I'll just I'll go in, I'll get a business degree, I'll figure it out. Um, and I got about three years into college and realized that I absolutely hated it, and you know, sleeping through classes, barely, barely getting by on the brink of getting kicked out of school. And, um, thought, man, if I don't, if I don't figure out what I'm going to, what, what I'm going to do, this is, this isn't going to work in my favor. So again, kind of leaning back on the fact that, man, what about this analogy thing? I'm going to, I'm going to see what that's all about. And they had a, a commercially bonded winery on campus. So the, you know, at the time it was one of two schools in the country at Davis and Fresno. I've heard about that. Yeah. I've heard about that from another guest that there it's one of the only ones with an actual winery on campus, which is really interesting part of that program. Yeah. It's pretty fantastic. And now, you know, there are more Cal Poly has, is working on theirs. I know there's some in, in Washington and I know Cornell has a great viticulture program and there are other schools that have come up, but you know, this is this a few years ago. So at the time it was just those two schools and the beauty of it, you know, they had a production class in the fall. So I said, all right, I'm going to at least take that class and see how it goes. And I jump in, or, you know, I show up for class that day. And instead of a textbook, you know, you get rubber boots and 
you know, they're out there crushing grapes and it just immediately, I was like, Oh my God, this is, I, I can't believe that people get degrees in this stuff. And, um, so I, I took that class. I, I immediately felt I, the first thing I remember is walking into the little winery. They had the original small winery and then they had kind of a, they've gotten some funding and built a, a little bigger version of it. But the original winery, again, kind of going back to smell, you just walk in and that cellar smell, it was amazing. And, um, it, it really just kind of triggered, you know, it just sort of sparked an interest for sure. And then we had to take a one unit class during spring break that, uh, you basically were at the mercy of wherever they sent you for that year. And the, the year that it was my turn to go around was up into dry Creek and Russian river Valley up in Sonoma County. And, um, absolutely stunning, man. Beautiful up there, beautiful wines. And I remember in particular going to, uh, Rokioli. And, you know, you walk in and, and it was a guy and his dog and just, you know, doing what they love. And you look around and it's stunning and um, the wines were amazing. And um, I, I just felt right there. It's like, man, this is what I need to do. This is my calling. And um, so I switched majors and I never went back and, you know, finished finished three more years of school. And, uh, you know, with all the undergrad work I had to go back and do. And um, so I got my bachelor's degree and and then uh, graduated and went to work for Fetzer up in Mendocino County. You know, and luckily I met this this lovely lady up there at the same time. So, um, you want me to keep going with this? You want you want me to kind of hit any other topics? How are we doing? Wow, yeah, no, no, this this is great. I think yeah, let's transition into uh, the kind of the next phase of, of when you guys met and um, kind of leading up to the launch of of the brand. And I know a lot of things happened in between that time. Sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, absolutely. And certainly feel free to cut me off. I'll talk all day, but, um, so yeah, so after college, you know, I'd actually done an internship. Um, when, when I was interviewing up, I was looking in Northern California and, um, I was interviewing at places in Napa and and other areas. And, and a lot of them were producers that did sort of one thing really, really well. Um, so you'd have a, a cab house in Napa, you know, really fantastic wines, but but they sort of really specialized on that one thing. And, and I wasn't sure where I wanted to end up. So, um, I had a, a good buddy that was working at Fetzer and, um, kind of really explained sort of what they were all about. And one of the really appealing things is at the time they were farming about a thousand acres organically, um, and a couple hundred acres were using biodynamic principles. And I thought that was pretty fascinating at the time. This is back in the late nineties. And, um, I know that's been around forever, but not too popular here in California. So, um, so I thought that was pretty pretty intriguing. Um, and then also, you know, they worked with virtually every varietal you can imagine, you know, you're doing everything from Chardonnay to dry Riesling to Rome varietals and Italian. I mean, it was, it was all over the board. Um, and I figured, man, if I'm going to learn something, it's probably going to be in a place like this, um, whether it be good or bad, you know, sometimes you learn what you want to do and other times you learn what you don't want to do. Um, so I thought it was a fantastic opportunity. I went up there. I don't believe at this point in time, I could have made a better decision. Um, they were, you know, it was sort of the golden days there and things were going incredibly well and they were sending winemakers all over the all over the world working with different winemakers in in france and spain and italy and south america and australia and um so we got to work with a lot of different people and i feel like the the learning curve was unbelievably steep and and really appropriate for me at the time you know not with without having a ton of background from a family standpoint you know i wanted to absorb as much as i could as quickly as i could um and they sent me to Australia. I worked to harvest in McLaren Vale. Um, we toured through France from the from uh, Burgundy all the way down through the Southern Rhone on multiple occasions and working with unbelievable winemakers and their knowledge, I think, really shaped kind of where I wanted to go. 
And, you know, as, as fate has it, you know, you end up in a place where you never expect to end up with a, a life partner, <laughs> you know, in a little podunk Ukiah in Mendocino County, um, especially in a dive bar the night before Thanksgiving. But um, yeah, so that's you- actually where we met. <laughs> and it's like named the Forest Club. It's very apropos. Yeah. <laughs> we just happened to meet right before Thanksgiving. I don't know if this rings a bell with you or rings true to you. But a lot of times when you came back from college or whatever, you would hit a bar right before Thanksgiving and all your college yeah. friends and everybody would come in, you know, because you're all back in town. And, you know, as Scott said, it's kind of a podunk town of you guys. <laughs> great no, people you, there. Yeah, there's great people there. Um, but, you know, I was, I see this, you know, six foot two, blonde, blue eyed guy. I'm like, wow, he doesn't look like he's from here. <laughs> so uh, I immediately kind of like tracked him down a little bit. And I always joke he had all of his teeth. Not everybody in Ukiah does. No, I'm just kidding. You're making more enemies in Ukiah than I am right now. This, so. I don't, nobody listens to this in yeah. Ukiah. Yeah, no. so. But um, so we met there and then we happened to find out we both were working at Fetzer. I was running a supervisor campaign as well. So we kind of just That's hit it so off. funny. And, wow. Yeah. You went from there. And, you know, the um, I probably was a little more gun shy than than I probably should have. I took a little longer to actually ask her out. But um, she was going to head back to Colorado. So she graduated from University of Colorado and she was, you know, in love with the environment there. And she wanted to head back and she was scheduled to fly home and or, you know, back to Colorado. And I thought, man, if I don't ask this girl out, I'm going to I'm going to regret it. So uh, Fetzer had just bought an old cherry orchard that they were planting some vineyard. It's a beautiful spot way up on this mountaintop. And um, so I said, hey, Vikel, you want to I'm going to go check out that vineyard. Just go for a little hike over the mountains over here. You want to go take a look? And she said yes. And we, I think, have literally been together virtually every single day since. Um, it's just it's amazing how things happen when you aren't looking for them. So. Yeah, so there we are. So we um, started dating at that point. We actually, I moved down to Paso Robles in 2000, uh, right about June. Fetzer was opening a, uh, a winery here on the Central Coast called Five Rivers. And I was scheduled, you know, I actually taken the, the assignment of being the winemaker for that brand down here. Um, and I moved down in June. Um, then Vakel came down a little bit later in that year in mm-hmm. October. And, uh, you know, like I said, you blink and it's been 20 years later and, um, wow. and, and what, what year, what year was that about? So that was in 2000. Okay. Yeah. In 2000. And, and around that time, what was Paso like? Was it, I know it's still kind of up and coming, even though it's, it's up and came in the past five, 10 years, but was it, you know, how was it as far as the winemaking culture, uh, back then? You know, it's really, it's come a long way right there. It was sort of on that, I guess if you kind of look at it as like stair steps, I think Paso sort of undergone this um, evolution and, you know, starting way back in the late 1800s and stuff that get started, but, you know, in this really long plateau. And then now all of a sudden you're, you're hitting these little jumps and right about that time, kind of late nineties and stuff was really, I think when you, when you saw one of these, these big spikes in, in attention and quality and um, just an understanding of the area and, you know, mm-hmm. at the time, uh, Chris Cherry had Via Creek Restaurant right there on the square. Um, Bistro Laurent and uh, these places. You know, there were there was actually some places you could get really really fantastic meals. And we spent a our fair amount of time at Via Creek drinking margaritas and <laughs> and that kind of thing. It's just it it kind of became a hub for this sort of wave of of energy. You know, there were certainly people that had been here before paving the way, but there was really this um, kind of renewed energy with sort of a, a 
a younger, a newer um, kind of base of winemakers coming in that uh, decided they wanted to do something a little bit different in this area. And, you know, for me personally, other people were from the area. Um, a couple of people coming in from outside the area were maybe in Napa. You know, you'd be stuck as in a lab for some number of years. We're down here. It was sort of the Wild West and you could jump right in and, and you know, make a splash pretty quickly. And that was very appealing. Um, you know, with when I worked with Fetzer, Pebble Smith, um, uh, James Berry Vineyard, he was the grower relations rep for the Central Coast. And so we would come down here and look at fruit. And um, at the end of the day, I'd end up in Pebble's garage tasting wine and just homebrew stuff that he was making. And, and at the time, uh, Justin Smith and, and Matt Trevison were starting Lena Coloto at the time and, you know, tasting some of this stuff that, that Pebble was making as homebrew. I was, you know, after having uh, the opportunity to travel all over the world and try all these amazing wines, I thought, man, these are as good as anything I've had anywhere. They're just unique to this place. And it was really Pebble who sort of introduced me to the to kind of the west side of Paso here and the, the differences in terrain and, and soil profiles and proximity to the coast and, you know, the, the Templeton Gap and the influence from the Pacific and all these wonderful things. Um, so I'll, I'm going to finish that story briefly. Vikel's taken off. So yep. You... Ryan, great to meet you. Thank you Thanks so much, Vikel, for joining us. Yeah. But I'm going to leave and go pick up kids. <laughs> so... <laughs> okay. But Scott will talk your ear off, so enjoy. All right. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Evan. Talk to you later. Okay. All right. So, yeah, so Pebble had really introduced me to kind of what makes this area special. And that was really the calling, man. I was like this. I, I want to make Syrah in particular and Rome varieties on the west side of Paso. And it was really, in, you know, kind of an inspiration or inspired by sort of the work that, that he and, and Justin and Matt had just gotten started doing. And um, and the overall energy in Paso was really exciting. I mean, it just it seemed like a place where there was, you know, really un tapped potential i guess and i don't want to say untapped but people were doing doing good things but there was sort of this you know there was no ceiling you know where in other places i thought that maybe you know we kind of bump into that ceiling a bit here there was no reason to believe that we couldn't you know make a make a name for ourselves here in a in a short period of time and so i was pretty excited to jump into that but um since then pasos continued to grow in the same in the same direction i mean it's sort of the culinary hub of, of San Luis Obispo County. Um, it's just got this fantastic setting. It's very similar to maybe downtown Healdsburg or Sonoma and the fact that there's a park right in the center of town and plenty of charm and um, and welcoming, welcoming atmosphere sort of around that. And I think that that's kind of been the hub of this and it's very attractive and uh, it's unbelievable the amount of, of traffic um, not in, not in a in an insane, but the the amount of interest, I guess, rather than traffic, the amount of interest with people coming down and wanting to learn about the area, and I think people are really surprised when they come and they try some of these wines and they recognize, you know, the caliber of the wines, and and you know, even by some people's standards that may be in the upper end of a price point compared to other regions, you know, they're really unbelievably affordable um, for the quality you're getting, which is pretty remarkable. But uh, so anyway, yeah, that that was kind of Paso at the time, and and it's continued to develop. Um, for me personally, uh, at that point in time, right about then, you know, early in 2000, I was with Fetcher down here for a year and I, I knew pretty, pretty soon, um, actually in that whole process, I knew that wasn't really where I wanted to be forever. You know, I, I didn't want to make large volume wines. Um, I definitely wanted to make wines that thought, I felt that were more representative of, of what I was, you know, trying to do and, and just represented me personally. And, um, so in, in 2001, um, I actually left Fetzer and went to work for Summerwood Winery, uh, who had recently been purchased by a, 
a gentleman uh, from Japan and they were starting, you know, they kind of remodeled, they bought it from the Hope family and we're, we're launching a brand. Um, so they hired me as the winemaker to do the remodel and, you know, kind of get started there and start fruit sourcing. And we were very fortunate to jump into some of the, the best vineyards here on the West side with James Berry and Booker was getting started and we did some planting contracts there and um, Halter Ranch and um, Denner Vineyards and these places over here on the West side and made some pretty fun wines right out the gate and really got a lot of attention um, at that point. And I worked for them through 2004 um, and actually through the harvest of 2005, but uh, my last vintage to bottle there was 04. And then this whole crazy series of events beginning in 2002 sort of happened that kind of became the the brainchild of the birthplace or whatever it is for Torin. Um, Justin Smith at the time in, in 2002 uh, was doing some replants out of James Berry Vineyard and, you know, with the relationship that I built with those guys over the years from the Fetzer, um, uh, whatever relationship that we had, they asked if I was interested in some fruit. And, you know, I didn't have a brand. I did, had no plans. I had no money. I didn't know what I was going to do. But, you know, James Berry Vineyard offers you fruit. You take it and you figure it out later. That's that's the, that's the right answer. Yes, it's always the right answer. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because that is such a spectacular place and they're the best people ever. And, um so I committed a half an acre of Syrah and a half acre of Grenache from James Berry in 2002. Um, and because it was full replants, not grafts, I figured I had three to four years to figure it out. Well, in the meantime, while I, I was you know, making the wines at Summerwood, we had done a planting contract with Eric Jensen at Booker. And we planted, you know, we decided which aspects we wanted, clonal selections, rootstock, spacing, all this stuff. And he ended up subdividing off that piece and selling it. And so um, Chris Cherry from Via Creek, his sister bought it, and she quickly learned that owning a vineyard is a money pit. <laughs> and unless it's something you want to be involved in every day, it's probably not the greatest place to invest. So, um, so she, in turn, decided to sell it. And Eric Jensen at the time said, hey, man, why don't you buy it? And uh, I was really unaware that you could actually buy anything without any money. So... Um, he quickly introduced me to a banker and um, it was kind of this pretty interesting period of time where lots of luckily for me and unfortunately for a lot of others, a lot of financial institutions and stuff were in trouble for actually giving money to people that couldn't afford it. But um, I was one of the beneficiaries of that. I actually jumped in over my head and uh, Vakel and I, we bought that property. Um, it was planted in 2002 as well. So by 2006, we had jumped in, we bought the property. Um, James Berry came online, the Booker Vineyard came online, and we were able to keep small amounts. And so we started Torin in 2006 with 283 cases total, you know, across three wines. Um, and that was how, uh, that's how we launched that thing. So definitely some, uh, some very fortunate timing and, uh, definitely a willingness to get in and, you know, you jump in, you're over your head and then you figure out how to float and, uh, you know, we managed to do that. And we've certainly always been willing to do that. And luckily, you know, it's worked for us. And here we are today. But um, that's kind of how we, we started the whole thing off in, in 06. So. That's amazing. And I was reading about the name of Torin, meaning the hills. Um, you could talk about what went into kind of the name and the branding and, and what you were going for there. And we'll get into the, the other labels that where you produce Pinot and Chardonnay and, and those types of varietals. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, at the time... Um, my wife and I, we were naming our son and, um, cause you know, we're, we're a young couple at the time. 
and we're going through one of those books with like 50,000 names or whatever it is, 10,000 names on whatever. And we get all the way through and we get to Torin and we look at it and it's a Gaelic word and it means of the hills. And it made so much sense, you know, for one, everything I'd learned about the hillsides here on the west side of Paso um, and also the actual property that we were launching Torin from you know, little 30 acre property. Uh, we had 10 acres of vines on there. And just in that little 10 acres, we had every aspect because it's such a hilly property. And, you know, this crazy limestone soil and these, um, this, you know, really high free lime calcareous shale, all this fantastic stuff was, you know, sitting in these hillsides. And that was really the magic of this whole place and what made it special. And so of the hills just made all the sense. And so we ended up naming a brand that we hadn't even launched yet um, <laughs> prior to naming our, our kids. And so we ended That's up kids, great. Yeah. Reese and Gage ended up the names of the kids, but Torin, you know, settled in for the name of the winery. And, and I don't think it could be a better fit. So it's actually worked out really well. Yeah. And then we can get into the evolution of, you know, how the brand went. And then I was reading in 2016, you, you know, moved into a new property, 70 acres, which is home to uh, a tasting facility and, and where you are now. Um, and so, you know, what was that transition like from, you know, 06 to 2016? That's a 10 year run. Um, and then obviously 2016 to now, uh, what was that transition like? And, and uh, you know, leading up to the development and moving into the new property where you are now? Yeah, it's been a roller coaster. I mean, it's been, you know, kind of a whirlwind of, of, unbelievable excitement and, and nerves and fear and, and all these crazy things, um, you know, because we were pretty adamant that we wanted to, t- to do it in a fashion that that we always felt good about. We didn't want to compromise the integrity of the brand or the quality of the wines or anything for, you know, to, to increase production or to do things that we were uncomfortable with in that regard. So we really stuck to our guns and we, you know, we said we'll never bottle a wine that we don't want to drink ourselves for sure. And we never want to bottle a wine that we won't be proud to put in front of somebody else. And um, at the time, you know, I had taken up a consulting business and and really consulting for some fantastic brands. And it's really exciting to see those guys doing well now because they're all startups um, pretty much at the time. So um, that was pretty fun to be a part of and really gave me another opportunity to work with a lot of different vineyards and um, and really just kind of help continue to sort of establish a name for ourselves. Uh, but we didn't want to bring in partners and that kind of thing. So we took a very, very slow process. So, you know, imagine, you know, building a brand over 10 years uh, before you actually get your own home um, was definitely an exercise in patience. And I don't know if I've always been the most patient person. So it was really um, something that that I struggled with because I, I always, you know, I wanted to really have um, a foothold in this this whole thing. I wanted some I wanted to be established and and have a concrete foundation underneath us. But I'm really, really happy that we that we took that route. You know, kind of we mentioned in the beginning, sort of that grassroots campaign has really allowed us to to grow on terms that make sense for us. And um, like I said, we started with 283 cases. We had three different wines. Um, you know, after by 2016, you know, we were probably only up to you know maybe a thousand cases. Um, so it, you know, it was incredibly so- slow growth. Um, but again, it really allowed us to reach our customers directly. We knew most of them by name, or we had at least tried wines with them. And and it was a very intimate, personal kind of experience. And so everything we've done with the brand and its branding and its promotion, and we've wanted to make it as, as much of a part of who we are and what we've done and, and what we are striving to do, um, rather than just, just sort of a business that we detach from ourselves. We've definitely tried to try to intermingle that as much as possible. And, you know, we didn't have employees forever. It was just Fakel and I. And, um, 
you know, we we're very fortunate to, to be able to lease space at like Denner Winery and we leased a space in Tin City over here for a number of years. And, and then finally, you know, thinking about just moving forward and where we wanted to take this. I used to ride bicycles a lot and, you know, I would cycle around the west side of Paso all the time. And there's this long stretch right here where our winery is now on our property on Peachy Canyon Road. And it was always the stretches after I come out of the, you know, or, around Vineyard Drive and stuff, I'd hit there and I'd take a drink of water, or eat a goo pack, whatever it is. And I always looked at this property and I thought, man, someday somebody's going to do something amazing. That's a beautiful property. And it never occurred to me that it'd actually be us, you know? And so one day, you know, we see a for sale sign and uh, we get a hold of some friends at realtors and we take a look at it and um, you drive up to the top of this property and you, you have this unbelievable view of the entire Willow Creek little sub AVA and it's just absolutely stunning. And um, we thought, man, we have to figure out somehow, we have to figure out how to make this work. So uh, we spoke with Eric Jensen back at Booker, you know, because we sh we had bought that property from him. He was growing, doing really, really well. Um, so we asked him if he was interested in buying the old piece back, which he indeed was. Um, so he ended up buying that property back from us, which allowed us to jump into this property. Um, so the old property had an easement. We couldn't build a winery. We couldn't plant more fruit. We were sort of landlocked back in there between Booker and La Venture. Fantastic dirt, but we were sort of handcuffed. So... Um, this really kind of opened us up to the next phase and allowed us to to jump in. And um, so in 2016, we bought the property. There was a house on the property, so we moved in here. And we immediately started the planning process for our own facility. Um, so, you know, I designed the winery and, and all of the, the process flow and everything that we wanted to do. And uh, once again, you know, we kind of jumped in and and took on some debt and <laughs> said, Hey, we can make this work. And, and so for the first time, you know, as of for the 2018 harvest after planning and building and all that stuff, um, for the 2018 vintage, we actually produced our own wine in our own facility for the first time, which was really special. And that was, that like hit a, a, a chord because having traveled all over and, and seen places with history four or 500 years or more deep and, and seeing these places that are multi-generational and it's so romantic and inspiring and, and it's it just, it really makes you appreciate, you know, the, the concept that all of this stuff you're doing, you know, it, it's just your turn, right? You, you take us the, the best care of the land you can, you do the, you act the most responsible you can, and you really, you know, adhere to the, the mindset that, that you're, you're trying to do something special and you make the most of it because at some point you get to hand it over to somebody else, um, and so you want to hand it over in as good a position as, or, or better than you found it. So um, this really gave us an opportunity to do that and to have a home. And so we're pretty excited. Um, so 2018, we moved in or, you know, started producing wines in our own place. And, uh, you know, we had been incredibly fortunate in sort of the foresight to see all this coming. We had done planting contracts with some really spectacular vineyards at different sites. And it gives us an opportunity to kind of showcase different varietals from different aspects and different pockets all here on the west side of Paso. Um, and now we are actually planting this property as well. So, um, so it's been a quite a journey, and and it's been pretty remarkable. And I tell you, the the people that have chosen to support us over the years are are unbelievably kind and generous. And you know, they they buy wines and they share it with their friends, and their friends come and buy wines and share it with their friends. And um, and we're, we're you know we're eternally grateful to those guys. And and it, it just it really has allowed us to to keep you know on this path and. You know, we wake up every day and pinch ourselves and say, hey, man, we're, we're lucky enough to do this again. And we try not to forget how, how you know, grateful we need to be and how lucky we are to do it. So we're having a great time with it. 
Yeah, no, wow, that, what an amazing story and um, being able to kind of move up and you mentioned the roller coaster ride and that's what it's like being an entrepreneur, right? Is you have those, the highs and the lows and um, it, obviously this has really resonated with people about how you kind of intermingle you, know, you, your family, and the brand, because you know you guys, you guys are the brand. You, you, you are the winemaker, and I think doing that, it, it does come out really authentic and genuine, and um, obviously is resonated with customers. And being a DTC brand, as you mentioned, primarily, um, you know, now we hear a lot about different things like Casper mattress, or I don't know. There, there's like sure. so many of these new DTC brands that are coming out now. It's kind of becoming a shift in the in the mainstream culture, but I feel like wine has been that way for a long time and was kind of a pioneer in that DTC branding um, kind of phenomenon that we're seeing now. So I think that's uh, that's really interesting. Now I wanted to get to, you know, usually we talk a little bit about how you think about vineyard management and working in the vineyard and then talk a little about work in the cellar. You mentioned you were able to design your own winery, which is you know awesome. Not a lot of people get the chance to actually do that, and that can make a big difference when you're uh, working in production and and going through that whole process and streamlining things there. Um, and you know, so in that sense of how do you think about use of oak, those type of things, um, just kind of things in the cellar, and then we'll we'll run through the uh, the, the wines here. Okay, so that's good. Yeah. So vineyard management aspect of it, um, you know, learning a lot from Fetzer back in the day and um, and just a lot of the people in, in this neck of the woods, the people that have been fortunate enough to be exposed to kind of tapping into that, uh, the mindset that we want to be as responsible as we can. Um, we really look at each side and we try to farm it um, according to its capabilities. You know, we try not to over which we're not trying to expect more from a site than it wants to give us. So there's really, really minimal input. We dry farm where we can, where we don't dry farm. It's, it's really, you know, hard deficit irrigation models. Um, we've worked on increasing plant densities, you know, to, to keep plant requirements to a minimum. You know, we, we want to make sure that we're not, we never look at, at a tons per acre basis. That's really not how we're, you know, trying to farm. We're looking at more like on a, on a quantity per plant, like what can each individual plant sustain and give us the the quality that we're looking for. And so, you know, it's kind of been the mindset, even in tough dirt, you know, we find that if we, if we increase density in some of these plants, that each plant is required to do less work um, and still give us, you know, the, the, the density that we're doing gives us, you know, an economically viable model, but it gives us the quality we're looking for, smaller berries, smaller clusters, uh, more intense fruit, uh, less juice to skin ratio, that kind of thing. So um, those types of things have been really important. Um, and then the organic model, you know, we're definitely, we we don't use any uh, non-organically certified chemicals, and even those are a bare minimum, literally. You know, my Anderson Road property, we would spray an organic sulfur twice a year, and that's it. You know, no other herbicides, no pesticides, no Roundup. It was mechanical and hand-farmed. Um, uh, with as far as weed control, everything was handpicked, and just we're fortunate that we're small enough to be able to do that. And I think even on larger scales, as as Fetzer's proven, and other really responsible brands, that you can do that. Um, and it might be a little extra work, but you're certainly going to be rewarded long term. You know, we're not necessarily shooting for any type of certification uh, because really it's a more, uh, I guess, self motivated 
kind of reasoning behind it. We just want to make sure that we're we're doing what we feel is right. And even though you can be certified and use things that that may be certified, they might not be the best choice for that place or the most responsible thing. And so we just take it upon ourselves to make sure we're doing the right thing. Um, and that's that's the approach. That's how we feel. And that's how we work with all of the growers that we work with. They're on the same mindset. Um, anything that we do buy from other people, they're, they're contracts that are by the by the acre. So we control kind of the, the farming practices um, to, make, again, make sure that they're being compensated and make sure that that relationship stays healthy. Um, but also to make sure that once the winery comes in or the fruit comes into the winery, that it's going to deliver the wines that we're looking for. So um, that's been the mindset from from day one. And, you know, again, really excited to finally get this property that we're on now planted because for the last few years, it's all been, you know, contract fruit. And uh, it's it's kind of nice. That's certainly a piece of the puzzle that, um, you know, has an emotional attachment. You know, that that connection to the earth is certainly key to this. And, you know, we don't want to lose sight of that. So you know, it's fun. We're ripping up rocks here and um, going. And my, my kids went out the other day and, you know, they had a bunch of boulders had turned up. And so I said, hey, man, go look for some bones. And so he and a buddy went out and sure enough, man, they came back and said, Hey, how about these? And we went out and we found some more fossils in these wow. rocks here from, from marine life from millions of years ago. And it's, it's pretty amazing, man. Just, it really, it, it really reestablishes the point that this has been here so much longer than we have and will be, you know, so much past us that, that it's kind of fun that we just know that we get to participate for a, for a limited period of time. We're having, having fun with that. So um, yeah, yeah, yeah no, that's yeah. That, that's great. That's great. It's it's so cool how your kids can actually go out there and do that, and it, it really helps them be be in touch with the land in that way from a young age. Where I think that's something that's that's valuable will be really valuable later on. The one thing too I always ask is just how you think about picking decision because that seems to always be. Uh, a hot button issue with winemakers. Sometimes I'm told it's the most important decision or one of the most, you know, important um, things that happens throughout the whole process. Absolutely, man. That's you know, you, you can't put it back on <laughs> once you take it <laughs> <Yeah>. off. <laughs> That's it. So it's it's probably the one decision I stress the most, um, but it's also the decision I think that um, that I've learned the most from. And so I quit running sugars in the vineyard. You know eight, 10 years ago, whatever it is. Um, because you go through and you check numbers, you look at analysis and chemistry, you know, you're looking at pHs and acid levels and sugar levels and all this stuff. And you're human and you can't help, but let some of those numbers sort of distort your judgment potentially. Um, so I just quit running the numbers. Um, so I literally just walk up and down rows and I taste fruit and whenever it tastes ready, we pick it and it, it sounds goofy or it's, you know, and I don't mean it to sound, um, like I'm trying to be a cool guy or anything like that. It's just, it, it's how it makes me feel good about what I'm doing. And it makes me feel like I'm making the right decision because I'm doing it more from kind of a gut feeling. You know, there's certainly physiological indicators that you're looking for in, you know, the seeds and the skins and, you know, flavor development. But I'm really, you know, one of the biggest things with tech or with uh, Torin and, and even into the Logum wines is texture. You know, we're huge fans of texture and, I think that a lot of that comes from, you know, the the timing in which you you know you make your decisions on picking, and you feel a, a tactile shift in the fruit um, as you're tasting it. And you see color differences when you spit the juice out and the the tannin levels and all these things. And and I found that I I feel better about the decisions I make when they're not skewed by data, but rather done with kind of gut feeling. So so that's sort of the approach we take to, and it's it's just me walking through a vineyard and picking it when it tastes good. I know that sounds goofy, but that's it. 
So. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. That provides people some some interesting insight on that one. Now, in the cellar, you know, thinking about oak, um, you know, inoculation, yeast, kind of like all that stuff. What's yeah. your what's your general philosophy there? You know, we probably do as little in the cellar as as anybody out there, um, which is is kind of funny. And it, um, I know it's a million little decisions of of opting to do nothing that make you know huge impact, but um, everything's handpicked. It comes in. We do a pre-sort. Um, we use varying percentages of whole cluster depending on the varietal, the vintage, the condition of the stems, all that stuff. Um, then we do a secondary sort, and it goes into one and a half ton boxes, and we put it in a cold room. We tread around on it with rubber boots for a few days. And then we move it over to the warm room and we just let it sit there until the native yeast take off. We don't inoculate anything. Um, we, we make no additions at all as far as um, uh, acidification or anything like that. We don't make any chemistry adjustments. Um, it's strictly just sitting there and letting it, um, what, whatever native yeast come in on the fruit or whatever's sort of hovering around the winery, that's what completes the fermentation. We're unbelievably fortunate that we have some incredibly powerful yeast floating around because we definitely aren't shy on sugar usually when the fruit comes in. So um, we're able to get stuff to ferment and, and finish at relatively high alcohol levels. And, you know, once the fermentation takes off, um, we just, we use punch downs. We don't do any aerations or pump overs. It's, it's strictly, you know, just punch downs a couple of times a day, two, three times a day, depending on the time of the ferment. Um, what we found with native ferments is we generally have slower fermentations. Um, so most of them are on skins for anywhere from on the shortest end, maybe three and a half weeks or three weeks or so. Um, and on the longest end, maybe five or six weeks. And once it's finished, we don't usually press anything when it's sweet. So when it's when it's finished fermentation, we run through a basket press and then it goes into a little holding tank. And immediately after, just so we take all the press fractions that we want, everything goes together. And then we distribute to barrels at that point, And it goes through an ML and everything in barrel. And it stays on its lees in barrel for the life of the wine. We don't do any racking or um, until we blend pre right before bottling. So, again, it, it's incredibly simple because the, the mindset is, is that we, we spend all this time and energy getting this fantastic fruit in. And so we just want to give it the the opportunity to show, you know, kind of put its best foot forward without too much manipulation from us. Um, so, again, if the work has been done in the vineyard and it's planted in the right spot and we're working with Mother Nature properly, I guess, um, it, it brings something in that we can work with. And then, you know, the the creative side and the, the interesting side and any adjustments that we're going to make based on chemistry or anything is done with blending. So um, that's how we end up with blends like the Banshee or the new Le Devoir or whatever it may be is, is really, you know, kind of taking – natural um uh, candidates you know that are going to complement one another and so the blending process for me is sort of the most fun um as far as as oak goes um we used to use a little bit larger barrels um we used to use 228 liter barrels and then up to 500 liter barrels or punchins um we've kind of migrated away from that with the mindset that um grenache and things were going into 500 liter punchins but we don't have any shortage of fruit characteristic here. If anything, we almost have an abundance of it. And so I found we're getting a little more complexity when we're using um, almost more of a Burgundian approach with some heavier toast barrels and things, um, even with Grenache, and a little bit smaller. So we went down to 300 liter barrels for just about everything in the winery. Um, across the board, we're about 50% new, uh, but it varies from wine to wine. You know, some of the wines might be 60, 70%, others might be 20, 30%. But just as a, kind of an approach, we're, we're about half new or so on 
on the wood. It's all French oak. Um, we buy from about eight different coopers and uh, we've had fantastic relationships with these guys. And um, it's just, it, it, it kind of extends through the whole process. Um, we buy barrels from guys that make barrels like we like to make wine and, um, and they, they end up really marrying together quite well. So yeah, really a, a pretty simple philosophy on the winemaking side. And um, again, just really emphasizing texture and, and going from there. That's great. That gives people a, re- a really nice rundown of your philosophy and kind of how you're thinking about things. Let's get into the brands and um, you can talk about the difference between the, the GSMs and then the Pinots. Sure. Um, and first we can jump into the GSMs. I tasted through the Banshee and the Maven, which okay. we can talk about the 2018s. Yeah, great. So 2018 was fantastic. I mean, just such a, a, a beautiful growing season. You know, in Paso, we, we kind of are very fortunate that we're we're really just dealing with varying degrees of pretty darn good vintages you know we can have cooler vintages and warmer vintages but certainly versus some of our colleagues to the to the old world you know who are dealing with legitimate concerns you know with uh, hail and who knows whatever issues that they have it's pretty consistent here um but we definitely have warmer and cooler vintages and 18 and 19 on its heels were not our coldest vintages. They weren't like 10 and 11, but they were definitely really long, consistent growing seasons without the really big kind of late August, early September heat spikes and stuff that we can see. And so, you know, all this stuff was picked kind of mid-October into the very first part of November. So you get this magnificent hang time and beautiful fruit development, cool evenings, great acidity. Um, And so these are honestly, I think, going to develop into sort of benchmark kind of vintages. you know, our philosophy with winemaking is that we we don't necessarily do anything to make sure that the wines are showing their best on release. And if, if anything, we sort of embrace the idea that they're going to continue to get better over time. So, you know, the wines may be a little tight here early. Uh, we definitely recommend opening a little earlier, decanting on some of the younger vintages. But um, the Maven you know, is usually what we start off with. It's 100% Grenache. Um, Grenache is probably one of the most amazing varietals I think out there, uh, but maybe a little bit misunderstood, especially over in in California or here in, in some of the New World, and that it's done in so many different styles. And you know, early on, some of our vintages we we put a bunch of Syrah into it to try to kind of darken it up and and make it maybe more what consumers were expecting. And we realized that that we were sort of losing how graceful and beautiful the varietal itself can be. And so we we really cut back on that. And for the Maven itself. Um, we generally try to make it 100% Grenache. Um, occasionally, we end up with a little Mavet or something in there if we have a co-ferment that we throw a barrel in. But um, it's really designed just to showcase the the beauty and elegance and grace. It's I think Grenache is probably one of the hardest wines to make. You know, people talk about Pinot and that kind of thing, but it's it's kind of like the the Rhone producer's Pinot in that it's it shows all its cards. It's it's transparent and and it it's very obvious in its fruit profile and and it's really beautiful. But you're dealing with generally quite a bit higher alcohol, you know, than you would be with something like Pinot Noir. So you have the the challenges from a winemaking standpoint. And if you can really nail it, man, you're onto something special. So a Maven is someone with a unique or special skill set, and and so it's sort of a it's a carrot, you know, that we're kind of striving to get. That if someday we really nail this thing, then maybe we are, you know, onto something special. But um, yeah, Grenache is pretty pretty fantastic here, and I think in the west side of Paso, it's got every opportunity to. To kind of stand side by side with some of the greatest expressions, you know, globally. So, yeah, and I can see this the 2018 Maven 100% Grenache, um, and uh, and this one looks like fermented 100% whole cluster as well. Um, 
and then um, oak you're using about 35 percent new here um, and then um, you know you have you have some great tasting notes and a spec sheet that people can go check out of course we're going to link this in the show notes torinwines.com but um, yeah I mean I think you, you brought up a good point about Grenache and it, I've heard from from people how you know Grenache in California, like you said, it can be it's a little bit misunderstood and it can be kind of all over the map in the in this way that it's made, mm-hmm. um, which you kind of alluded to there. Um, so you know, focusing in on 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 this wine that you created, you know, you already touched on it here, but the the type of profile and and notes that you're going for, um, maybe you could could expand on that a bit more. Yeah, so inherently we're going to get more of those red fruit spectrums, right? We're going to get mm-hmm. things strawberry and raspberry and um, some of those characteristics that come through. Um, it can even, you know, migrate into pomegranate and some of that kind of stuff, which is kind of fun. But the the really interesting thing to me is there's definitely a savory um, salinity and kind of the meaty undertone that you can get. Um, yeah. And also, if you, you know, one of the things that I love so much about wines from like Chateauneuf is is they have this sort of secondary kind of dried herbs, this herb de Provence, this sort of characteristic, these sages and lavenders, and these types of things that come through. And I think Grenache can show that beautifully, but here we have a tendency to be so fruit forward that they never really get an opportunity to kind of just show themselves. And so we wanted to try to make sure that that was being, um, being recognized or, or showcased as well when we can. Um, and I think we find that with a little bit over, over time, those things unveil themselves a little bit more. So kind of our standard protocols. This is about 19 months in barrel. Um, and then we give it a full year in bottle before we release it. And, you know, we'd love to see this thing over the next, you know, five to seven years, kind of how it evolves. But even at this point, I think you can really see some of those undertones starting to show, but those, those complexities and that depth working with that, that texture and that tan and that mid palate weight, um, but with a great acidity. So it still finishes fresh. So you take a wine that, that otherwise might seem cumbersome, and it still seems fresh and light on its feet. So you have this sort of marriage of power and elegance, which Grenache does beautifully, um, which is kind of fun. So. Yeah, that, that's a great characterization. And it's such a food-friendly wine as well, like you said, with that fresh acidity, acidity being balanced with the fruit. And the notes on this, wild strawberries, uh, truffle, blueberries, floral notes. Um, again, people can go check out the, the notes on the website. And you provide a lot of great information. Before we... Move to the Banshee here. How do you think about decanning and temperature? Those are things that I always usually ask about. There's different preferences and, and diff, you know, kind of standard rules of thumbs, and then people have their mm-hmm. uh, different preferences along the way. Sure. You know, um, we have a tendency to open our wines quite a bit ahead of time. Um, so it's not uncommon for us to, you know, open it a matter of hours before we enjoy the wine. Um, with some of our wines, you know, it, it may be actually the day before. Um, mm-hmm. decanting your young wine is a great idea. Um, and we try to serve it, you, you know, we try to enjoy it at starting at cellar temperature, obviously, as you kind of hang out over the course of a meal or, you know, a bottle of wine is going to work its way up. But, um, you know, we love to stuff to come out of cellar 58, 60 degrees, that kind of thing, and start enjoying it at that point. Um, I think you really get to see the wine open up as it starts to warm up a little bit. But once you get a little warmer, you know, outdoor room temperature kind of thing, midsummer, it's definitely going to seem hot, you know, um, so we definitely probably lean toward a little bit cooler on the reds. Um, we'll get into the Chardonnay a little bit later, but even, you know, just generally speaking for white wines, 
um, not necessarily, you know, especially wines that have a little more weight and texture to them. We actually let those creep up a little bit. So some people have a tendency to serve white wines really chilled, and we actually kind of let them creep up temperature-wise to to kind of get the benefit of all the the aromatic presence, and it doesn't shut down so much and some of that texture. But um, yeah, so a little bit on the cooler side uh, for serving, and and again, definitely decanting. It's kind of interesting um, with our wines in particular if we're you know checking out a wine. We'll take a glass, put the cork back in it, stick it in the wine fridge, or you know, in the middle of winter, we keep a cooler house, I guess. But we just leave it on the counter, and the wines are amazing for five, six, seven days. It's unbelievable. And you know, we've had the opportunity with, you know, we did a tasting with Jeb, we did a ten-year vertical, and and not one of the wines were tired. You know, so I think that as you kind of see these wines open a little bit, you sort of get a snapshot into how they're going to evolve. And you know, just I think with some of the winemaking practices and stuff, and just the fruit we get. We're very grateful that these things are are going to age so well. Um, we don't want to be like old Bordeaux where you can't open it for 20 years. Don't even think about it. So if you enjoy young wines, great. They're going to be fantastic. But if you are the type of person that likes to hold on to them for a little bit, you're going to be rewarded for that too. So. Yeah, that's nice. You know, people have the option there for the type of wines that you're creating. Now on the Banshee here, I'm seeing about a third Syrah, third Maved, a third Grenache, roughly. Um, and then you're going to get you know, black and blue fruits, ground herbs, cured meats, pepper, spicy notes. And right away, I'm, I'm definitely picking all those up. Um, and uh, this is this is a really powerful wine, yet still really elegant. Um, talk about what you're what you're going for with this uh, particular blend. And you, you mentioned previously that blending was kind of the, the fun part for you and something that you have a lot of experience in. As well. Yeah, you know this this wine super fun. I, I love this wine, and honestly, I think over time this is one of the wines that just develops into probably one of the most complete, more interesting packages and in wines that we produce. But um, the big difference in this one is the Maved. So this is at thirty six percent. Whatever Maved we get for a vintage goes into this. This is the only wine that we produce that gets the Maved piece, and it really is the you know kind of the signature the Syrah is kind of the glue it's the one that kind of brings it together and has that beautiful finishing effect you bring a little bit of that blueberry and savory note to it but you know that that Maved piece with that herbal undertone and that leather and smoke and cured meats and that's that savory spicy notes um is really the differentiating factor and it's it's super fun and as this wine develops um you know we never it have ever set out to make wines like somewhere else because I think that's a recipe for failure, but you make the best wine you can for where you're at, but um, you can't help but notice similarities. And and I honestly think that of the wines we produce, if you were to line this up after four or five years or whatever and put it in a flight with some, some Southern Rhones, this is probably the wine that if somebody was going to mistake any of our wines for an older world wine, this would be the one. Um, and and I think that that's actually kind of a fun, unique characteristic about it. It's it just kind of does that on its own. It's nothing we do magically to make it make it so. But I think the Maved piece is pretty instrumental in that. The Grenache piece of it, you know, again, just adds another layer, brings into more red fruit, just to give it an, a, a little bit more depth um, on the the aromatic presence. Um, but again, I think that mid palate weight, the length and the texture, uh, or the the length and the finish, um, again with some acidity that's going to support it. But uh, yeah, this this is one of the funner wines to blend because you get those you know distinct varietals, and just because they're all good individually doesn't mean they're going to be fantastic together. And that's kind of the secret is figuring out those percentages. And and it's not the same. We're never trying to make a wine the same as it was the prior vintage. We're just trying to make it as as interesting as we you know as enjoyable as we can from that vintage. So 
it's a fun wine to make. Yeah, yeah, this is definitely one not to miss. Um, let's move on to the, uh, now, are there any other ones you want to talk about here? Um, you mentioned Le Devour, uh, and then there, there's a few others here on the website before we move on to the, the Pinot and Chardonnay and to the other brand that you have. Yeah, definitely. You know, so we, we do two releases. These are wines from our spring release. Um, and so we just released those a couple months ago and we have a fall release as well that we do probably the wine that's garnered us the most attention um, has been Akasha, uh, which is our Syrah. Mm-hmm. And again, that was the wine that got us here. Akasha is this, um, it's this belief that there's sort of this parent element to all the other natural elements, um, kind of earth, wind, fire, water came from this ether that for us, that ether was Syrah, you know, having had the opportunity to do things around the world and, and come back here and see how unbelievable those wines can be from here. That was kind of what brought us here. And I think Syrah is absolutely magnificent. And kind of my goal with that was always to uh, try to find the coolest pocket in a warm region, you know, so it's not true cool climate. Um, so it has a little more weight, a little more texture, um, but it still has some of those uh, olive tapenade, graphite, you know, kind of characteristics that go with that blueberry and those types of things. And that's a really special wine. That's kind of fun. That comes out in the fall. And then we do a wine called Sundari, which is probably our most outside the box blend where we kind of cross blend uh, with Bordeaux varietals. So we take Syrah and sometimes a little Grenache and then we throw it in there with some Cab Sauv, some Petit Verdot. And that really just showcases what this area can do without having to adhere to a, a kind of particular family of varietals. So that's a super fun wine. Um, and then the newest of the lineup are the Le Devoin Seneschal. So um, those are both blends. One's a Grenache with a Graciano kicker and the other one is a Syrah with a Graciano kicker. And that kind of stemmed from that mistake a few years ago where everybody thought they were putting in a Spanish clone of Maved and it turned out to be Graciano. And um, that's a whole other story. But, but we found that we loved it. Um, and so rather than abandon ship and, and replant or graft or anything like that, we decided to find a home for it. And it has unbelievable uh, weight and, and this, this fantastic acidity. Um, so we take these really unique vineyards of Syrah and Grenache that are head trained, higher elevation, make them at a little higher pH. And we put that Graciano piece in there and it just uh, it really gives it precision and and but still allows you to showcase a varietal. It, it, they're really fun wines. So those are kind of our core six wines for Torrin. Yeah, and, and people can, again, check these out on the website. You have um, a, a lot of great tasting notes and, and just all types of information, tech sheets. And again, we're going to get into how people can get on the mailing list and get access to these wines, but torinwines.com. I can see, uh, for people who don't know, maybe just speak briefly on Graciano. I'm seeing it's a Spanish varietal, something I'm, one varietal I'm not particularly familiar with either, so I'm sure many, many people out there won't be. Maybe you could just touch on that briefly yeah yeah so it is it's a spanish varietal um and it, you know it was planted here almost you know by mistake um wow. there was some terminology uh confusion in the in the nurseries and they thought that they were bringing over a spanish clone of mavedra and it ended up being Graciano, another name for graciano interesting and, and is that gonna happen but <laughs> you know when you when you look at it um it doesn't behave quite like Maved. You know, the canopy is a little different. The leaf color is different. The um, clusters, while they're shaped very similar, they have big shoulders and wings, these kinds of things. Generally, they have smaller berries. They're definitely darker in color. And, you know, certainly one of the signature things, you know, that we've noticed here is definitely the acidity. And when you pair that up with this really high free lime soil here, the acidity is sometimes on its own can be almost, you know, obnoxious. It's, it's a little too much. 
but again, it does magnificent things in the blend. And so as far as precision and, and, um, backbone, I guess, as you would, you might want to call it, or, um, just balance overall, it does beautiful things, but, um, it's, it's been a fun variety for us to work with and learn from. A lot of times we find that it benefits us to actually co-ferment it um, rather than trying to get it to ferment on its own with native yeast and things because of that acidity. Um, so we'll take percentages of Grenache, percentages of Syrah, if the timing's right as it comes off the vine, and uh, we'll co-ferment. And, and those says that you know combination's actually worked really, really well for us. But it's a fun varietal. You'll Occasionally you'll see a varietal Graciano, um, maybe done in a little bit different soil profile where the acids aren't quite so high. Um, but it's a fun wine to, to, to research and check out. And, you know, I think it's, it's kind of neat. You'll, you'll definitely start seeing maybe more of those over the years here that for a while it was called Maved um, until it was identified that it actually wasn't. Um, so you'll start seeing Graciano on more labels, I think. It'll be kind of fun. Interesting. And I can see you also make a James Berry. Is that something that you, gets made every year? Is that in select vintages or what's the story on that one? Yeah, you know, we've done it quite a few years. Um, it's such a great site. Um, mm-hmm. Our philosophy with how we go about the winemaking process is we make all of our blends first. So the the core Torin wines are definitely the focus. Um, Got it. Where we come in, and we make all those. And in the event that we've made the wines how I how I like them, and I and I'm I'm happy with how they are in the bottle, and we happen to be able to recognize a vineyard in a vintage, we'll try to do that. Um, it's worked out that we've got enough Grenache, and because uh, we we get more Grenache from James Berry than Syrah, um, and so. Um, it's worked out that the Grenache for the Maven has been beautiful and we've been able to showcase James Berry a little bit. Um, it's such a fantastic vineyard, you know, and it definitely doesn't need us promoting it because it's done so well, but you know, sometimes you just can't help it. It's got this amazing, um, almost like wisteria kind of, uh, wildflower character in the Grenache. that's really unique that I've gotten from that site. And, um, it's been really fun. So we've done that a number of vintages, but it's, it's such a small production. It usually doesn't make it, you know, kind of past our mailing list. Um, usually doesn't really make it to the tasting or anything. So, um, it's fun for us to do and, and showcase, you know, here and there, but it's, it's such a small amount that, that we really don't get to get in too many people's hands. So, yeah. Now let's move on to, to the other brand here where you make a Chardonnay and a Pinot hundred percent for, for both of those varietals. Um, what was the, the background here and the, and the thinking, uh, with, with this project? You know, this has been super fun. Honestly, um, my wife and I, we decided from the get go that we were just going to make wines we like to drink. Um, Mm -hmm. and then if you're trying to make wines to make everybody happy, you're going to, you're going to fail. You know, it's just, it's such a slow process that if styles change or whatever, you're going to be always playing catch up. So again, we said, you know, we'll make wines we like, and then we'll find people that agree with us. That's kind of been the, the concept. And, we, we love Pinot and Chardonnay. You know, we drink, you know, chances are if we're out at a restaurant ordering wine with dinner, chances are it's Pinot. Um, you know, we drink tons of Rones at home and and that kind of thing. But um, so in 2014, you know, we were sold out of all of our wine. Um, we didn't have any new contracts or planting anything coming online for the Torin brand here in Paso with our Rones. So I thought, man, what a great opportunity. You know, we've wanted to, to look into to doing a little bit of, you know, something a little different. Um, so now it's kind of a, a great opportunity. And so knowing that I wouldn't be able to grow it here in Paso, um, I just reached out to a couple of friends from, from over the years. And my first call was to Chris Hamill at Bienacito. And, <clears throat> uh, we tracked down a little bit of Pinot Noir from there. Um, and then through another friend, Kevin Wilkinson here, I got in touch with Blake, Willi- Blake, uh, uh, Brooke Williams, sorry, um, with Duverita Vineyard. 
Um, yeah, a couple, Santa... couple of the top vineyards in Santa Barbara. Yeah, so fantastic vineyards. And then we ended up in Solomon Hills and just these really unique sites. And one thing that it was, I kind of found out that it was sort of this progression of sand, you know, so Duverita being the sandiest, Solomon Hills, moderately sandy soil, and then being a seat of the least amount there as we go up on the hillside, but all with this really great proximity to the coast and cool climate and really unique characters. And, and you know, when I spent some time in Burgundy, they, they threw around a term that's called typicity, um, that it was just typical of the varietal. And so our goal kind of in the winemaking process was that we wanted to, to be unmistakably Pinot Noir, right? We didn't want to make it and force feed a style that was going to make it um, maybe more California in that regard. But um, we just wanted to make sure that the varietal intensity was showing through and uh, it still had that kind of signature uh, palate presence that we kind of had with the Torrin wine. So there's fantastic weight, it's super silky and, and lush, and there's tons of um, length to the wine. But again, it's it's very feminine, I guess, in the fact that it's 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 not so heavy-handed and, and muscular as some of the, maybe some California expressions can be, but it's also sort of not on the other end of the spectrum where it's incredibly lean and acidic. So lagum is a Swedish word, it means just the right amount. And that was very fitting for kind of how we wanted to approach the process where it was, it was just sort of this really beautiful balance of things and Pinot Noir is such a great job of doing it on its own we just try to stay out of the way and let it let it showcase itself yeah I, I love that I love the, the the meaning behind the word and the, the double entendre there uh the notes on this one this is a Santa Barbara County Pinot Noir 100% we talked about the vineyards there black tea dried cherry lilac fresh strawberry ground spice typical notes that you'd find in a pinot um it, it, it sounds really delicious now on the chardonnay um this one let's see yeah i'll let you i'll let you talk about this one all right so this this is the wild card man this honestly has turned out to be one of the most spectacular ones i think we make and it's and nobody expects it this one is crazy mm-hmm. um you know nobody expects to come to the west side of paso and find this this expression of Chardonnay. It's very Mont Rocher-like almost. It's got a ton of minerality, and uh, but but fantastic weight and flint and mineral, it's in, but beautiful fruit. And um, it, it's fun. It, it's a fun winemaking process for me. We, we take a little bit different approach maybe um, than some wineries do. And the key for it was really finding the right fruit. And so um, Kevin Wilkinson um, introduced me to Spanish Springs Vineyard, just inland from Pismo Beach in, in um Santa Bar- down near San Luis Obispo. So you head south, you get to the coast, and you when you head inland toward Edna Valley, just about two miles from the water to the middle of the vineyard um, from the Pacific Ocean, you're incredibly close to the ocean, but you've got this little ridge that kind of runs parallel to the coast right there that sort of blocks that initial wind and, and sort of the harsher characteristics or um, you know weather factors. And you get this beautiful maturity of fruit. It's unbelievably gorgeous in the, the fruit development, but it has fantastic acidity almost like piercing acidity in some ways and so you know again with the whole concept of just going through tasting fruit i literally just wait until it you know stops hurting my teeth you know it's just it's really fantastic how much but it 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 doesn't manifest itself in the wine it's just it's remarkable but um there was this cutout because they were putting in a housing development back there so it was kind of cut out of the of the soil profile and, you know, had a reasonable amount of topsoil and then had a bunch of fractured shale looking stuff. I thought, man, this is going to be really interesting in the proximity to the ocean. So we went ahead and we got two clones, um, clone 96 and clone four uh, from opposing aspects. One's east and one's west. And 
Um, you know, again, we kind of go through, we farm it to our, our specifications. We drop quite a bit of fruit out of there. And, um, you know, again, we pick it when it tastes good. And the difference, I guess, when we come in, I used to make Chardonnay in a way we'd, you know, really clean juice. We'd settle out the leaves. Um, you know, we'd want to really focus on a lot of the sharpness and, we kind of took the opposite approach. I worked with a guy in Burgundy that was all about dirty barrel fermentations and lots of leaves and lots of oxygen and, and these types of things. And so um, I had tried it when I was at Fetzer. We did a little experiment on it. It worked out really, really well. And um, I thought, man, that's probably the, the route I would take if I chose to make some for myself. And on a little side note, we had done a, a, a tasting with one of our nursery um, representatives at a, at, a, at the Unified Wine and Grape Symposium. We did this dinner thing. And he had a bunch of 10-year-old Chardonnays um, from California. So he had some, you know, Peter Michael and Kongsgaard and Litteri and Henzel and these types of things. And it was really amazing to me to see how beautiful these wines were at 10 years old. And um, this is a while back. So I thought, okay, if we're going to make a Chardonnay, I want it to age well. Because um, most people buy white wines. They, you know, buy it on Friday, take it home, drink it Saturday, and you're good to go. And um we wanted to give people an opportunity to take a look at wines and kind of what they're like when they, they age. And so um, in order to allow the wine to do that, when we bring the fruit in, we let the juice oxidize like crazy. So it looks like really brown, dark apple juice, no SO2, any of that stuff. Um, we put it in barrels and we just walk away. We leave it alone. And it usually takes maybe you know seven to ten days or so to start fermenting with the native yeast. And it can take up to six months to ferment. Um, then native ML goes through. That might be another couple of months. Um and again, no acetude in the whole process, but what happens is all that stuff that's going to turn brown and oxidized settles out in the lees. And what's left is this beautiful golden hue, just gorgeous wine that's going to last for years. Um, so because we have such fantastic acidity, it really gives us the, you know, the opportunity to let that balance itself out. But um, then we come through, we let the lees settle, we rack the wine off the top and it goes to bottle unfined, unfiltered. Um, and it's just a pure expression of this site. And, you know, it's it's got this fantastic kind of um, almost like oyster shells like crushed seashells um, that you kind of get beneath this stone fruit and pineapple and these kind of notes um, but it's got this really good palate presence and weight and then this really incredible acidity that supports it on the finish and you know we we did our first vintage this was 15 so we don't have too much history with it but going back to the 15 now it's it's gorgeous it looks not much different than the day we bottled it um, so I think the process is working and our philosophy is we get about right about a year, just just shy of a year in barrel uh, before we bottle. And then we give it two full years in bottle before we release it. So the 2018 vintage was just released. Um, that's our, our current release of this. Um, so, again, it gives somebody just a little bit of a, of a window into what a few year old bottle of Chardonnay might might look like. And, um, and I think if it's done in this fashion, it's going to still have all kinds of youthful vibrancy to it. Um, with tons of complexity and and I'm pretty excited about it. It's really a neat wine. Yeah, and, and this really gives some gives people kind of an alternative to, as you mentioned, just a tr- traditional Chardonnay or a traditional white that you're maybe you buy on a on a Friday or and drink on a Saturday or, or just <laughs> buy and just drink that night. But um, this is this is a really special wine and and doing something really different here. Um, so people can, can definitely check that out. Tell people how they can get access to these wines, get on the mailing list, win the releases, those types of things. Yeah. So unfortunately we, you know, again, we're still, we're only up to just under 3000 cases for our brand total. Um, mm-hmm. And certainly our, our, our wine club allocation list is, is probably the most secure way to, to access the wines. 
Uh, we do tastings by appointment here, and you can sort of reach out and, and set up an appointment and come and try what we have available, and we certainly do our best to take care of you. Um, it's, a, it's a great little experience. The, the facility is beautiful, and um, it's, a, you know, it's a flight of wines. You have a personal attendant that will make sure they take care of you and explain everything through, um, through the whole process. And um, as far as, as distribution, we really don't have much in the marketplace. So, you know, if you stumble across a bottle of wine from a few years ago through some distribution, um, it'd be great if you could pick those up and see how they're showing. And then, um, you know, you, we don't really sell our wine on our website, but you can you can give us a call here at the winery. And if you're interested in securing an allocation or something or getting on the mailing list, um, we'll definitely get you set up there. But we do allocate a percentage of our production to the to the tasting room to make sure that we keep our doors open. Um, we've always felt like sort of that last link, link in the chain is actually sharing a glass with somebody and we don't want to miss out on that. So um, we hopefully, you know, hopefully your listeners have an opportunity to come and visit us in person. Great. Yeah. And I'll link, um, we're going to link everything here in the show notes and you have a really great Instagram too um, that I, that I was looking through and some great photos and things and it's showing people out at the tasting room and the, and the whole facility there. Um, so this is great. Uh you know, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Um, I think, you know, the last thing that I always ask guests is just, what what are you drinking when you're not drinking wine? It might it might be alcoholic, <laughs> but it doesn't have to be. It might be something else. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny. You know, they always say it takes a lot of beer to make wine, all that stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, that's the classic know. line. <laughs> yeah. You know, we drink a little beer here and there. You know, we're fortunate to have some friends locally that make some fantastic stuff. Um one of the things I've really been learning about over the last, let's say, eight or ten years or something has been um, bourbon. I've been kind of figuring that out. We were fortunate enough to do a little event at Blackberry Farm in Tennessee a while back, and they introduced me. Um, I kind of went the wrong way around this. They introduced me to something I can't get, you know. Um, we tried some Pappy Van Winkle back there, and I was, oh, wow. I, was <laughs> I was kind of like, wait a second. It, it, it can taste like this? Um, and so obviously my, my pockets aren't that deep, so I'm not spending a ton of money on Pappy, but um, – I just kind of set out a little quest to sort of learn about uh, bourbons. And so it's kind of fun, man. We sip on bourbon here and I tried to get into scotch for a bit, but I'm sort of kind of staying stateside here a little bit and figuring a little bit more out uh, about that. So that's kind of fun. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, you know, as, as cliche as it sounds, I mean, we, we drink wine. That's yeah. If, yeah. If I'm drinking beer, it's usually like a, you know, a little Pacifico or something by the pool. And then I get much past that. I, I open some Chateauneuf or something from Spain or, you know, something like that. Or some of my, I'm lucky to have some good friends and neighbors here that have some fantastic wines. So, um, yeah, that's kind of where we're at. Well, this is, uh, this has been really great having you on really appreciate it. Again, we're going to link everything here in the show notes. People can, you know, get on the mailing list, go and visit you guys. Now that things are finally opening up after COVID here, California is about to open up our big grand opening or reopening in a couple of weeks here now. So right. everyone can, uh, can go get on up there and there, there's a lot of pent up demand. So get, get your corkscrews ready up there and, and get ready for the influx of people. I'm sure. Okay. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for having us, man. We appreciate it. And we appreciate you, uh, putting out the good word past us doing some fantastic things and, and we, we love to see people here. So, um, thanks for the support. Thanks for joining us today. If you like the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. 
You can support the show by subscribing to our email newsletter for just five bucks a month. Find it on our website at goldenwestpodcast.com. In it, you'll find unique bottles from both popular and undiscovered winemaking talent, among other things. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at goldenwestpod, or you can email us at goldenwestpodcast at gmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and may or may not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or any other advice. Please eat and drink responsibly and thanks for listening.